His apostles have been, all sorts of things were done to them. They've been cooked alive. They've been skinned. They've been stabbed with spears. There's been nasty, awful, ugly things that have been done to God's people in this world. Agonizing, gut-wrenching, unimaginable things. But what no one has ever experienced is, is this dichotomy of knowing that they will absorb the wrath of God and never having experienced a moment of God's anger or displeasure. He's going to the cross. Never, ever have, since, since time began by his word, never, ever experiencing separation from the eternal love of the Father or anything but ultimate pleasure, ultimate joy, ultimate peace. Never has he been separated from the blessing of God. You and I could never say that. Anyone that's ever lived could never say that. And so when I bring this topic up, we have to know that, that it's, it's almost impossible for us to get how agonizing that would be, how absurd almost that would be to us. The, the, the perfection of humanity, the, the only beloved and begotten Son of God, is now walking through a week that's going to end up with him on a Roman cross, absorbing the wrath of God. And so my prayer has been leading up to this, that we would leave this moment loving Jesus more and hating sin more. That like Romans 8 tells us, we would be about the business of mortifying <coughs> our sin, that we would put to death the deeds of the body, that we would live according to the Spirit, that we would understand what sin costs. I don't know about you, but in my life I've not been very good about counting the cost. So that's why I lead us now into this Good Friday service, that we would more value the wrath that was absorbed so that it doesn't befall us. When we, when we utter these things, there's almost no emotion you can grab onto that's sufficient for these things. That's why when you get to these great victorious scenes in heaven at the end of the book of Revelation there is constant and utter praise and joy and glory around the throne for the lamb who was slain it's, it's an eternal celebration and I would argue that you and I have yet to grasp just exactly how amazing this is so John eighteen eleven. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. The apostles are having a hard time staying awake. And they are completely separated from Jesus and acknowledging what he is getting ready to do. The guards come in to 
the garden. These Roman soldiers led there by one of the twelve, Judas himself. So in chapter 18, verse 3, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the second time that Peter has tried to impede the progress of Jesus going to the cross. You remember the first time was met with a sharp rebuke from Jesus to get behind him Satan. In other words, in Jesus' mind, it's a settled reality that the good will of God is that he be crushed under his wrath. Can you imagine being settled under such a prophecy? Not that you have to be comfortable with it, but you're, again, resolved in it. Jesus knows Isaiah 53. He knows the will of God. He, he knows exactly how this is going to take place. That alone would send most of us running for the hills. Nobody wants to deal with crucifixion and suffering and pain. That alone. But it's the wrath of God through it all. It's, it's the removal of blessing from the Father and the putting on him a curse. Something you and I hopefully will never experience. And so his instruction here to Peter or his word here to Peter. Is probably in a settled. Calm. Resolved tone. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? He's just been agonizing in prayer for hours. He's been sweating drops of blood, literally. He's, he's, he's been torn by the fact that his flesh wants to pull away so bad from this, and yet he knows that the will of the Father is good. So as they finally come to take him, he is ready. I don't know how you can be ready other than in faith. It's a pattern we've seen from martyrs throughout history and even across the globe in our day today. These people go to their death singing. If only they would just recant their faith. If only they would convert to um, Islam or if only they would renounce what they believe. 
What they've been teaching. If only they would stop preaching. They wouldn't have to go through the things that they go through. But they, in following the footsteps of their Savior, are, are resolved in the fact that the will of God is good at all times, despite, despite the fact that, that humans are inventors of evil and find ways to seemingly silence them from the gospel. And what Jesus teaches his followers here is that the gospel will never be silenced even in death. Jesus is not losing because they've come to arrest him. Do you see on display just the power of his word uttered from his lips when he acknowledges the fact that he is Jesus? You know what he's saying? You know why they're thrown back? <coughs> he's saying, I am the Savior, which would also mean I'm the anointed one, which would also mean that I come with the power of the Lord, which would also mean that I'm that figure in Daniel chapter 9 that's coming on the clouds of heaven with all authority to reign over an eternal kingdom, which also means that he is the king to sit on David's eternal throne and to reign over God's people. All of that is coming out when he says, I am he. It has a physical manifestation when it's uttered. You see there what God's word can create when it comes from his mouth. So if you ever wonder, well, how does he do this Genesis 1 thing where he's like, let there be light, and then there's light. Well, you, you have a glimpse of it here when he speaks and physical bodies are moved the bio biology that he's created in people their anatomy their physiology all this stuff that's taking place within their body when he speaks a word all of that obeys its creator and responds in the proper way opposition is blown down by the pronouncement of his name In Matthew 20, verse 22, James and John get their mother to approach Jesus and ask if they can sit on his right and his left when he comes into his kingdom. It's a really bold thing to ask. It's an arrogant thing to ask. And, and Jesus uses this language. He asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They have no idea what that means. But what they think it means is uh, that he's referring to the cup of destiny. That, that Jesus is going to reign eternal as this king. And, and, and that's his cup. That's his drink. And so they, they assume like, well, yeah, I can drink that. I'm all for that. What's the problem with that? And what they don't know there and what nobody knows until it comes time is that, that that cup is surely a cup of destiny, but it's filled with the wrath of God. And what Jesus responds to them is, yeah, you surely will drink this cup. 
but it's not for me to say who sits on my left and who sits on my right. He's assured them that they will suffer, that they will die on account of this. But it's not the same. There's a, there's a curse in this cup of martyrdom that these guys will face. And yet, Jesus is also instructing them to entrust the Father with their future and their eternity, how that ends up. You're going to drink the cup. And if you knew what that was, you, you would want nothing to do with it, except you have to trust that God will work that out, that he'll cause that to work for good, as it surely has. The testimony of these apostles who drank this cup of martyrdom uh, has transcended the ages. It, it, it caused the church to spread and explode and blossom. It, it is one of the greatest apologetics we have for the cross. It, it tells us that this testimony that we have has been verified and been made sure and that, that it's, it's not uh, just a false idea that people made up so they, they could find a way to rule the world. Certainly that wasn't the case. They gave their lives for this truth, just as Jesus does. And so I asked the question, how does he get from a place in the garden where he is asking the father to let the cup pass from him to when he is approached by this mob and he is resolved to drink the cup? How does he get there? Because it would be helpful for us to think about the cross to think about our lives, our suffering, and, and how that matters and how we come to a place where we're resolved to know that God will bring much glory and good from the things that we encounter that we don't want to encounter. Philippians 2, 8 is the answer. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by be becoming Obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In his humanity, he had to find out what it was like to put complete faith and trust in God even though he's getting ready to take upon himself nothing that he deserved to do something for people that they didn't deserve, that we didn't deserve. He was getting ready to experience that faith, that hope. And he found that at all times, Obedience to the Father's will is good. He's resolved to drink the cup, which means he gets what's in it. What's reserved and stored up for the wicked, Jesus is going to drink it. Psalm 75, 8, Isaiah 51, 17, Jeremiah 25, 15 through 17, 
28 through 29, chapter 49, verse 12, and Revelation 16, 19, the wrath of God is seen as overflowing at times, being poured out by a cup to make people drink it. It's a, it's a poison. It's an unbearable drink. It brings death. Revelation 16, 19. This is the seventh bowl of the bowls of God's wrath that he's going to pour out upon the world at the end of time. And here the bowl is poured out on Babylon. And in, and in verse 19 of chapter 16, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Here's the distinction between the judgment of God upon the nations to come and the, and the judgment that was hurled upon Jesus. Jesus willingly drank the cup. God didn't have to make him drink. Which tells us what? That Jesus was perfect. Because he did what the Father wanted him to do. You kind of have a foreshadowing of this when Abraham brings Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him. It seems ridiculous. This is the son that he's waited for. He had Ishmael, but that didn't pan out the way that you know he would hope. And so this is Sarah's. Son, this is the son that she was promised, that he was promised. Here he is. I'm going to go up on the mountain, and you want me to kill him. Okay, your will is good. Let's go. That faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Jesus already had obtained and, and maintained righteousness by complete and perfect obedience. Abraham couldn't do that. Isaac couldn't do that. Israel certainly can't do that, and you and I can't do that. But Jesus can, and once again, he faces the ultimate test of that reality and his faith in the Father's will by submitting himself to drink the cup. It is an unbearable thought and reality to any of us, and it is one of the reasons why James tells us that the demons shudder at the pronouncement of his name. It's the reason these people fall down when they come into the garden to arrest him. There is no more terrifying reality in all of the universe or in hell than the wrath of God. We have to stop imagining the boogeyman as, as something uh, that's carrying a pitchfork or hiding under beds. No, we have to see the wrath of God as the most terrifying reality that exists in the whole of the universe and beyond. To come under his judgment, to come under the weight of his perfection and holiness, bearing forth in complete and utter condemnation, upon somebody, you will be utterly destroyed by that. And then Jesus, who has been in complete unison and unity with the Father since before time existed, is going to be the one who's going to drink that cup. It's reserved for the sin of the nations and the most perfect, loving, gracious, kind, merciful, and righteous human being is going to step in and grab 
that chalice and drink it to the last drop. It's no coincidence that when this is all over and you can switch to the next slide that Jesus says it is finished. What's finished? What's finished? The cup. The cup is finished. Every drop. We we don't we don't know what that is. <laughs> and and Jesus spared us from knowing what that is. And so we live lives that proclaim, hopefully, the good news by word and deed that, look, the wrath of God is coming. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness, and he is proclaiming this very thing, that the wrath of God is coming. And when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, that means that holiness and righteousness are going to be what reign over the universe. And if you are not one of those things or characterized by that, you will be thrust out by the wrath of God. It's like when Noah goes into the ark and God shuts the door. What is raining down from heaven? Wrath. And Jesus is going to drink it? I think one of the first people to understand what happened on the cross was the centurion who looked up at Jesus after he had died, after he had yielded up his spirit or gave up the ghost. And he said, surely this is the son of God and this man was innocent. Innocent. Which means that he must be up there for some other reason than paying for his guilt and sin. He must be up there for some other reason. Atonement is paying the penalty or paying something in place of what it costs to make good on a penalty. Propitiation is appeasing or satisfying wrath or an offended party. And so Jesus approaches this cross like a high priest who's bringing a spotless lamb to place on the altar to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. Which will satisfy God's wrath. Make good on the penalty. And the extreme reality or extreme to us. Is that we see shadows of this in the Old Testament law. Hebrews 9 and 10 discuss this, that the blood of bulls and goats could never satisfy God's wrath. People don't want to think about the fact that God has a wrath that needs to be satisfied. That there is something so far beyond what we know of holy and perfect and righteous that it would require uh, a lifeblood payment, death penalty. 
And so we see these things in the Old Testament, the bulls and goats that were offered on the Day of Atonement uh, to atone for the sins of the people. And, 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 and Jesus makes clear, and the writer of Hebrews makes clear, those things could never do it. What they were were types and shadows of the right payment, the right penalty at the right time that was to come. If we are the sinners, human beings, created in the image of God, and God is the offended party, then when Jesus takes on humanity, what he is doing is coming to present himself as the spotless lamb. And so in Revelation, he is to be praised as the lamb who was slain. That is not a cute picture of a, of a white fluffy lamb that's hopping about. That is a loving sacrificial picture of perfection that laid itself on the altar in place of imperfection. It's, it's utterly astonishing that this universe exists, that God would create something and create a world that is suspended over nothing. But, but beyond that, that he would enter into that creation that he has made and make sure that it lives to glorify him in the way that he intended forever in his presence. And his creation as these unique individual people that have minds and abilities and, and all this sort of stuff, they won't ever get there. Jesus will have to come. And he will have to die. And yet, God will vindicate and show that that sacrifice, that appeased my wrath. That satisfied everything that offended me of your sin. So I hope you rest now in the peace that's been granted to you, knowing that 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 was the payment. That was the resolve of Jesus. That was done at a time when you were still sinners and enemies. He's there for people that are cursing his name. He's praying for people that are nailing his hands to the cross. He's praying for these instruments of God's sovereign will to crush him. And that that would uh, bring you into such a joy and a peace and a, and, a, and, a, and a comfort and a confidence, knowing that God continues to love as now you're his child, as now you've been made righteous through Jesus, uh, uh, sprinkling you with that blood that was poured out on the cross. That you would walk in that every day, that you would know that that means more, uh, that is more powerful than the sin that still tries to ail you or befall you. And then, then that you would hate that sin. That because you were going to be, you were going to be, God still decided to create you. Knowing what your sin was going to cost him, not you, him. You and I have probably experienced debt before or are experiencing it. And that is nothing, nothing compared to the sin debt that that characterized us before God's holy throne. So he was rich in grace and mercy and he spent it on us which required Jesus to make the payment and he made it in his lifeblood. 
the wrath of God. So please don't forget tonight that Jesus willingly in hope and faith of the glory that was to come resolved to drink the cup. You cannot imagine what that is. You can't comprehend what that is. And so go from here praising God that you don't have to know what that is. Um, I ask now that you would pray and reflect on these things, that you would prepare your hearts to take the supper in faith and in good conscience. And, um, and then I'll ask uh, our brothers to come prepare the table, and then we'll take it together, and then we'll stand and we'll sing a hymn together. So pray now.